0: When you think about business competition, where are you focused? Your town, your state, across the country? You need to be concerned with competitors around the world. Welcome to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Today, you'll hear about the mega trends in global business and how they affect your organization, as well as explore issues, solutions, and some amazing facts about business worldwide. Now, here is your host, Mahesh Joshi.
1: Welcome to Global Business with Mahesh Yoshi. I have with me uh, Dr. Nikhil Sally from University of Houston to talk about decarbonization and global business. What is the relationship between the two? How they can help each other or they're separated? That's what you're going to discuss today. I will uh, start with a little introduction as per an analysis by NASA which shows that that's global average surface temperature in 2020, tied with 2016, warmest year on record, 1.02 degrees C warmer than the baseline of 1951, 1980. Temperature are increasing due to human activities. Very clear, specifically emission of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane. Rising temperature causing phenomena as a loss of sea ice, ice sheets melting, sea level rise, intense heat waves, and shifts in plants and animal habitats. Having said that, look at two events, very recent events. Uh, bushfire in Australia, 46 million acres burned, smoke released. Particles rose 18 miles high in the atmosphere, blocking sunlight, cooled the atmosphere slightly. Second, global shutdown due to COVID 19. Particulate pollution reduced because of that. More sunlight could reach surface, created small but potentially significant warming effects. These shutdowns helped also to reduce the amount of CO2. Now, the biggest challenge what human being is facing today, 10,000 years of progress by human civilization is now at a point, you can say, where it is threatening the very condition that made that progress possible, which is the stability of climate on the earth. Very important point. The impact of changing climate are increasingly visible across the globe, along with their socio-economic impacts. Both will continue to grow until the world transitions to, most important, a net zero economy. And good news is that a large number of governments and companies are committing to accelerate climate action. Solving the current net zero equation has to be done along with pursuing economic development and inclusive growth. Needs to be an orderly transition process. Otherwise, it could affect energy supply, access, and affordability especially for low-income householder regions. It could be counterproductive. It could also have knock-on impacts on the economy more broadly, potentially creating a backlash that will slow down the transition. And I have Dr. Selly from University of Houston to discuss with me today. Dr. Selly is a competitive strategy and international business professor with a keen interest in smart technologies at University of Houston. He also heads the Global Initiatives for Bar College and College of Global Initiatives. He has a PhD from University of Western Ontario and MS in Electrical Engineering from University of Rochester. And he is also uh, having a Bachelor in Engineering. He conducts multidisciplinary research, which has been published or forthcoming in top academic publications, such as Strategic Management Journal, Journal of Association for Information System, and the Journal of Management Studies, and he has presented at numerous conferences, including Academy of Management, Academy of International Business, and Strategic Management Society Conference. Nikhil has also authored several strategy cases on mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, and diversification of multinationals such as L.I. Lilly, Hawaii, Cents, Hair, and Bharti Chali. These have been featured in various strategic management texts and employed in MBA and corporate training programs. Dr. Sally has taught strategic management and international business courses at various universities in North America and Asia. Hello, Dr.
2: Sally. Uh, Hello, Mahesh. How are you?
1: Good, good, good. Dr. Sally, thanks for joining the program today. Oh, it's my uh, pleasure. Thank you. We are going to discuss the most important problem being solved across the world and and see... uh, Uh, and and shed some light on the important aspects of that, which is getting to the net zero, uh, which is uh, maintaining the temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C by 2050. So what you all see around us with all the climate actions uh, being put in place around us, it seems like if, if you read through all of it and see what initiatives are coming to achieve net zero, it will mean a fundamental transformation of a lot of things. And, and, and number one, I feel, is world economy. Because uh, there are a lot of pieces of world economy which will get impacted. Because if you see about net zero, which are the main contrib- contributors to global warming and uh, what needs to be changed, it would definitely require significant changes to seven energy and land use systems that produce the world's emissions which are power, industry, mobility, buildings, agriculture, uh, agriculture rather, forestry, and other uses of land use and waste. You know, and there are a lot of, lot of uh, I would say, key requirements mm-hmm. which will be required to fix it, which encompass physical building blocks, economic and societal adjustment, governance, uh, institutions, and even individual commitments. You know, what what I see and and I would love to hear your views uh, to share with our listeners that, yes, there are a lot of moving pieces here, a lot of things to be done, which includes governments, which includes individuals on the other end. In between, there are companies, there are certain, certain other institutions. So a lot of moving pieces, which has a major impact here. But beyond that, what we have recently seen, even the geopolitical upheavals can polarize the concerted actions being taken. So if I have to kind of put some few bullets in front of you uh, so we can start a discussion, is let's look at what levels of spending on physical assets would be need- needed if we are really go for this transition to net zero. Who would pay for the transition, right? Right. How would the transition affect companies, markets, operations, individuals, governments, all of it? And what would it mean for consumers? What, what would it mean for workers? And what are the opportunities in front of companies and countries? And what are the risks in front of them which they need to weigh? And uh, how do you encourage consumers to make changes to the consumptions to to contribute towards net zero. Uh, Not only just the consumption, the spending habits on what they consume, so they're consuming the right thing, which is not contributing to global warming. And uh, all of it, what is necessary for the transition? So let's discuss uh, your views and what you see as what could be the nature and what could be the extent of the economic and societal adjustments which you and I and the whole human race will see in future and how it's going to impact um, uh, the global business. Because one question is in everybody's mind, would it impact the globalization? So we'll, we'll address that in the later half of our discussion. But let's think through and talk about the economic and societal adjustments.
2: Sure, Uh, huge, huge questions. (laughs) Um, I I hope we can do justice at least to inform uh, and have a good discussion. Um, And maybe, uh, you know, thank you for also sharing a report with me and I'll draw on that a little bit for some of the data. Uh, It's one of the McKinsey reports on net zero transition uh, done earlier this year in January, where if you look at their estimates, uh, they've come up with a staggering I use the word staggering amount of capital uh, that would require um, you know to be made available and invested, and the amount they've come up with, you know, just drawing on one report, is cumulative spending of around 275 trillion trillion dollars, which is almost eight percent of the world's global GDP uh, over the next, uh, let's say, almost 30 years till 2050. Now that amount is simply uh, I, I don't know what other word to use, but I would say you know if that's uh, and most of it is going to be front loaded over the next let's say till 2030 or so. Um, so to me that is really uh, the the biggest uh, let's say uh, uh, what resource investment capital you know that we're that we're looking at and you know money. using the word money doesn't grow on trees. You can print only so much money, as we've seen. Uh, Where is this money going to come from? Uh, It's obviously going to entail a lot of change, as you rightly pointed out, but a lot of shifts uh, in our consumption, even as individuals where we spend this money, um, in terms of financial systems, how we raise this money, in terms of companies where we invest and allocate, In terms of governments and policies, just on this economic part, you know, what role do they play and how do they come in? Um, So, yes, uh, I think we could just start with, you know, drawing on this staggering amount of money um, and capital that would be required, which is going to really feed into all of those other changes and shifts uh, uh, that you mentioned.
1: That's a very valid point. That's a massive, staggering investment, which has to come in. And if we quantify by year, so approximately if it is 275 between 21 and 2050, it will be around $9.5 trillion a year. And and, and currently, the spend is around close to six into these kind of assets. So that Mm -hmm. will get transformed into uh, investment into the right uh, requirements plus $3.2 trillion extra. Now that $3.2 trillion extra in that 9.2 annual spend, that's a humongous number.
2: Absolutely. I mean, thats uh, I think the U.S. debt alone is somewhere around that, or the U.S. Treasuries. Um, and then, you know, the U.S. is the largest uh, and wealthiest nation. Uh, and if the U.S. alone is, is <laughs> faced with that, staggering number each year, um, you know, even if we cut this number by by half, by one-fifth, by one-tenth, I don't see any other country even coming close to having the ability to raise that kind of capital, right?
1: Yeah. I think you bring a very good point, because if that kind of capital spend is going to come in physical assets for energy use and land system, the net zero transition uh, up to 2050, which means as you rightly said, $3.5 trillion. if I take in today's term of 2020, it is half of the global corporate profits as of today. It is one-fourth of the global tax revenue, and uh, it is almost 7% of the household uh, spend. You know That is a very staggering number. And, right. and, and, and the way it looks like, as, as you rightly pointed out, it would be front end loaded. So if it is front loaded, which means if it is six, I think the number is 6.8% of GDP today to it will become almost 8.8% in next five to 10 years. That's a huge percentage of GDP going into low emission assets and, and allocation of capital into doing the right things uh, for technology and other things to, to lead to the net zero.
2: Um. Absolutely. Uh, and then I think just on that point, I know we are going to get to all of the others, uh, but just talking of, of this, you know, we've talked about global, right? GDP.
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah. If
2: you look at, you know, the distribution uh, across countries and you know, which countries are going to be impacted more versus those, we all, you know, the whole world is impacted and the whole world, it has to be a global effort, but oftentimes, You know, some of this falls on some of the world's greatest polluters and emitters. And we find, you know, unfortunately, that developing countries or countries that have just recently emerged uh, are the ones which have the furthest to go, right, in terms of making these investments and causing uh, emissions. But they are the ones that are still growing and their needs right now are being met by many of these fossil fuels, for example, in the energy sector which tend to be cheaper, which tend to be even newer, like coal plants are only 15 years old, whereas in the US, they, they're pretty mature, I think 30 to 40 years old. Uh, so just on that point alone, uh, there's going to be a lot of, I think, inequity, and there's going to be a lot of resistance. There's going to be a lot of, um, and there already has been, uh, in all the efforts made so far about climate change, uh, you know, I, I don't really see see how or or it's going to be very challenging to get together as a group of nations and move forward with this. Uh, So I I would want us to maybe, you know, uh, for uh, 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 listeners and us to think, you know, these, these are very, very difficult challenges, even if hypothetically, we could come up with, you know, investments, how would we distribute these and how would we allocate these and who gets to decide <laughs> and portion, who does
1: what? That's a very important point you bring in. Because uh, we will have to seriously look at what is the responsibility? How is this net zero going to impact developed nations? How is it going to impact developing nations? How is it going to impact the poor countries? mm mm-hmm. Plus, while you're looking at countries, there's another complexity comes in, which is the global supply chains. How are the supply chains impacting the carbon footprints of various countries? Is it just related to that country where the carbon footprint is high? Or is it it getting impacted by the requirements from some other geographies? What we're going to do is, uh, Dr. Sally, we'll take a short break and we'll move into that direction about how global supply chain and how various countries will get impacted in our next segment.
3: For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy to read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book global business at mkjgb.com act now and as a special offer you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author mahesh joshi order today at mkjgb.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
0: This is Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. To reach the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's worldwide access to 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to maheshjoshi.82 at gmail.com. Now, back to the program.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. And I have with me, Dr. Sally, and we are talking about the most glaring issue in front of uh, the human race: uh, global warming and how to achieve net zero. How it'll happen? who Will pay for it, and how everyone, <clears throat> individuals, companies, governments, all can contribute. a great discussion in segment one. Now we are in segment two, and we'll quickly go to what you talked about: various countries and and how they can have a various role uh, in in the in the process of containing the climate change. I just wanted to <clears throat> uh, share some more piece of information with our listeners. Then yeah. how do you take climate action in the global economy? It's pretty tough. You know, we are globalized, even with geopolitical upheavals and tariffs and all that, still we are in global economy. Uh, I, you know that when people are putting uh, tariffs and uh, putting sanctions, they're now using the financial methods. So, so basically, capital is mobile. This is important. Yeah. And uh, we all know that giant multinationals, some of the multinationals, uh, the, the, the large corporations either in IT sector or digitalization anywhere, these multinationals, some of them have more revenue in a year than GDP of several countries, you know, and they can switch production between continents in response to the demand and in response to the competition and in response to the regulatory changes. Let's say climate is a regulatory chain. They can always make a change where to move. Now, climate change is a global problem, and that requires a global solution. So the companies will have quite a bit of role to play in it and how they move their capital, how they move their supply chains. Now, if you remember, the Kyoto Protocol came in. It it tried to create a top-down global system. Didn't work as well. So it got superseded by the Paris Agreement, which kind of is built on a bottom-up system where governments propose voluntarily what would be their national emission targets. So, So that kind of architecture Has created kind of a ramp up mechanism in national climate commitments. So everybody is is making the commitments. Some by 2030, some by 2035. You would have heard some people say by 2030 we'll have all EVs. Some say it's 2035, depending on the situation. So that has created awareness, and uh, these things include net zero country targets. People are committing to that, even if the years can be staggered. Now. Can the climate obligation remain in national borders? Because governments are making it. Because climate change is borderless. Because once you are emitting gases, it is not you are impacting that country or the boundaries of that country. You are impacting a global climate. And that w- that's a national phenomenon. And also, the economies now, the globalization impacts for the last 30 to 50 years it has it has not allowed the borders to be hermetically sealed for countries. Right, you, know, <laughs> and you find so many sectors in any country uh, which goes across so many borders, and and everybody is facing international competition. Although some some countries are trying to put some tariffs to to contain it and and to give some advantage to their own countries for certain activities, but the the net impact is. Everybody's sharing global supply chains and markets. So supply chains are global, everybody shares. Markets are global, everybody shares. So are the, the, the move of capital. So the financial invest, investment, the investors are now global. They can go anywhere. And they can they, they now have developed capability in the last 20 to 30 years how to navigate the national regulations. Earlier, uh, national regulations would kind of prevent the flow of capital. Now, when you come to decarbonization, governments face certain issues. How do you move aggressively with their decarbonization plans? How risky they see are carbon-intensive forms to them. Risky means how quickly they will leave. And what are their responsibilities? And how do they see the economies which have already developed leveraging those high carbon infrastructures, which dangerously destabilize the climate. Like for example, uh, if you had to break the economy into three pieces, which is developed nations, developing and poor. So most of the developed nations have probably become uh, the economies who are leveraging, developing and poor, which are producing goods and services at low cost with them. In the process, they are becoming carbon intensive. But they're supporting the developed nations, which then can be seen as less carbon intense because of that. Now, I will uh, look for your suggestion before that. I will just quickly share with you energy transition index. So the top 10 countries are not the ones who consume the most. On the top is Sweden, followed by Switzerland, Finland, Denmark, Norway, Austria, United Kingdom, France, Netherlands, Iceland. You know, these are the countries on energy transition index moving fastest to, to the, the, the renewable energy or less carbon-intensive energy. But if you look at it, how much gar- carbonization they're doing
2: anyway. Exactly, right? And all these countries, you know, other than I think you mentioned Germany, UK, the, and France, right, in terms of European countries, right, uh, and Nordic countries uh, within Europe, uh, you know, they they, they do have uh, a few things in common is that they definitely, all of them we were put under the developed and service economy, right? Other than those few. Uh, in terms of energy, I think France also relies on nuclear energy. Uh, they have been the most aggressive uh, in terms of, as you rightly pointed out, setting uh, targets um, and very supportive uh, in terms of governments, but also consumers. Uh, so it's an excellent move. Uh, and you know we welcome the lead that they have taken in that, uh, but you know unfortunately these are not the highest emitters or the causes of uh, the crisis that we're in. So what we do need uh, is to really also look at some of the other countries, uh, and you know talk uh, a little bit about how they are placed, and uh, you know what might be the challenges for them as well.
1: Sure. You mean to say their exposure to net zero zero transition, how, yes, how countries can be grouped? They can be grouped into different groups.
2: Right, right? exactly. So let's yeah. maybe, you know, as you pointed out, you know, uh, we've got the rich countries, right? Mm-hmm. Or the so-called, um, you know, well, the richer, or the, the, the ones that have had more time, at least since the Industrial Revolution, you know, the last 100, 200 years to develop. And so most of these, I think, are service-based economies. So we've got, uh, as we pointed out, you know, um, Uh, The UK, the US, uh, France, Um, Germany happens to be, uh, you know, developed, but more in line with countries like South Korea and Japan uh, that have become large developed manufacturing countries uh, that we would call as downstream emission manufacturers. Uh, Then moving on to, you know, the emerging or newly emerged countries um, obviously the two largest in the world in terms of population and emissions would be India and China. And these are extremely emission intensive. Um, We also have Indonesia uh, and Vietnam uh, as part of this group. Uh, And this is where I I think we'll have um, tremendous um, challenges uh, especially in terms of, you know, these are countries that have come out from the low, low income to middle income. Um, and now they're in stages of um, still high growth. A lot of that requires a lot of energy use. And we pointed out, you know, those seven key sectors, uh, which contribute uh, more than 80% of the emissions, you know, the land use, such as energy, agriculture, Mobility, infrastructure, all of these are growth areas, uh, you know, for these countries. Um, are we going to stifle growth by asking them to make investments uh, and staggering amounts of investments, uh, which, you know, they are currently at a, a cycle, which is a growth oriented. Uh, how, how, do, how do we do that? And then finally moving on to, you know, for lack of a better categorization, you know, the, the less Uh, developed and the poorer countries and we have a lot of those which are you know still dependent on agriculture and uh, you know we've got a lot of these in in Africa currently we've got Ghana we've got Senegal uh, we've got countries like Sri Lanka and you know how do we transition them from a basic need uh, which is agriculture uh, not just for growth and development but just you know, basic subsistence, Uh, of course, you know, there are lots of advances in agriculture um, and technologies. And we'll talk about that at some point, I think in the next section, Uh, but, you know, it really raises uh, a lot of questions because we look at the globe, we look at a global unified effort, but there's stark differences uh, in regions and countries uh, across the world.
1: That's a great point. And uh, Dr. Nikhil Sally will take a short break and we will continue our discussion on this interesting topic in our third segment.
3: For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi, Order today at mkjgb.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: This is Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. To reach the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's worldwide access to 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to eighty two at gmail.com. Now, back to the program.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh have with us, Dr. Sally, talking about uh, the net zero 2050, how the decarbonization needs to happen. Very interesting discussions, Dr. Sally, in uh, first two segments, in third segment. Just want to comment on what you mentioned, very important point. How do the economic development take place and how it has taken during the industrialization phase? Yes, fossil fuel came into existence and very heavy use. And that created the development, and for the last 10,000 years, the human race has been developing. And last few years, during industrial revolutions, it had its role to play. Now we are focusing on decarbonization, other side of it. But at the same time, you want to grow, right? The economy has to grow because everybody has a right. We are developed countries, we are developing, we are poor countries. Now, developing in poor countries want to enhance the standard of living. They want to develop. Developed, they've already developed, but they want to continue developing further. How do you do without fossil fuels, which the developing nations at that time, which became developed, used it? So I have an example to share here. Bhutan, the only country in the world which is net carbon negative, means it's a carbon sink. Now, what's happening there? more than 60% of Bhutan is covered in forest. And they purposely gone into the forest cover so that they consume, they absorb uh, a lot of carbon dioxide and they remain carbon negative. Imagine they are surrounded by who? One side, maybe world's biggest emitter, China. On the other side, could be the second biggest emitter, India in terms of their economic growth. These are the economic juggernauts which are coming up. So assume they're uh, emitting the most CO2. It's a small kingdom in between two and still carbon negative. Now, the lesson to be learned there is they do not measure their development in GDP. They don't talk about gross domestic product. They talk about GNH, that is gross national happiness. Now, That's a humongous mindset change for the whole society. So you can say, yes, leadership has a role there, but the whole society is driven for happiness, for preserving nature. So the rules there are such that minimum 60% will be forest. They I think probably they have more than 70%. They use hydroelectric. They don't do any other kind of power generation. So is it that thinking different will suffice only or thinking different? And letting go of the past and finding new ways of development would be the solution. That's what I wanted to highlight here because you raised a very, very, very valid point how the certain countries developed in the past and what would happen in the future. Now, moving on. Now, these three elements of global economy, developed economies, developing, and poor nation, if you see in a way they help each other. The developing and poor nations would give products and services cheaper than what a developed country can do in their own uh, backyard. So they leverage that and they control inflation. They do high value added things. Now, since they are related, let's look at that picture what's happening there. So what is the potential implication of the net zero transition for trade flows? Because the value chains in past decades have grown in, in, in size, length, and complexity. If you look at the global trade itself, in last 20 years, the value of intermediate goods traded globally, which are required for finished products, has gone up by 300%. It is 10 trillion now, which used to be close to like three trillions in year 2000 or so, 20 years ago. Now, increasing production of goods for export where would you call the carbon emission increase because of that? Because in this case, a country is increasing its own carbon emission, and the carbon emitting processes with him or her, and the energy use. Then you are sending the merchandise and products as, or, or the components to a country which claims to be a very good in carbon emission, but it's just importing the product. Now, who is responsible for that? How do you share that social responsibility? Can you push that social responsibility to certain countries and prove I am clean? Or you would like to see like Bhutan, I'm not even contributing to it, right? I'm rather yeah. creating a, a forest or I'm creating a carbon sink. Now, uh, there has been some research uh, which has estimated that in, in let's say some of the manufacturing sectors um, to be precise, let's say textiles, that's a massive export, apparel, leather, and chemical, etc. 30 to 65% of emission in China and India are induced by foreign demand. That's not for their consumption. They're just exporting. So that carbon emission is attributed to a product which is going to a third party. Now, I definitely understand the level 1, level 2, level 3 carbon footprint. That's a brilliant way. The level three is tracing your supply chain. That's where this will come in, where the countries, where other countries will come into picture that which country contributed to an increase in another country. Yeah. And, right. and if you look at, there's another way to look at on this phenomenon, regarding export, exporting of goods and having production emissions embedded in somewhere else. You can look in, in, in various countries and i think you have uh, you have a very good understanding of that subject uh, where it gets produced in fossil fuel emissions would you like to talk about that dr sally
2: No, i think great points uh, mahesh i'll just pick up on the one you uh, yeah just mentioned but also who's to blame you know one simple example is uh, at least you know uh, we are currently in, in in the us and let's look at you know food consumption even right uh, beef Right, uh, one of the staples uh, in in North American diets, at least. Right, uh, and interestingly enough, India doesn't eat beef, but India exports beef. Right, so just just to your point, you know, we, we call these countries that are exporting; they're sort of exporting their carbon uh, emissions uh, from India to uh, to to the West. Uh, yeah,
1: because they are facing; they are emitting all the gases are contributing to carbon uh, decarbonize uh, rather carbonization but the fru- the food is being eaten in some other countries
2: and being consumed somewhere else right yeah so so just to your point you know whether it's textile whether it's apparel whether it's uh, you know agriculture beef uh, and other such industries uh, which uh, you know I, I really like the Bhutan example uh, I, I I think though you know, for countries, uh, especially like China, which, uh, you know, one of the big reasons uh, they've had, I think, stability um, has been the economic growth. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and suddenly to replace that, uh, you know, with uh, by cutting back, I think there's there's a lot of, I, as you know, would uh, acknowledge uh, political and, uh, you know, uh, shall we say even local, you know, Catering to the local population uh, and their demands, uh, so all these kinds of uh, I think factors will be uh, you know very difficult for these large countries uh, uh, that have already developed uh, to sort of I think curtail their development uh, and and embrace you know a more natural and holistic way. Unless unless uh, I think uh, the rest of the world uh, comes in. And and partners with them, Uh, and we, you know, this this attitude of uh, you know, um, you do and you have responsibility as a country. I think this this needs to be revisited, uh, if uh, if we if we really are serious about uh, net zero or even coming close to net zero.
1: I think you made a very good point. If you look at it in in a different way on the categories, let's let's look at it fossil fuel resources and the producers. There's, there's a bunch of countries, which easily you can see, like Saudi, Nigeria, Qatar, Russia, Canada. Yeah, they right. are into the fossil fuel resources and producers. They have resources, they refine. they do all this kind of stuff. That are some other countries too, I'm just saying one bucket. But you look at the other bucket, producers, which cause emission intensiveness. It could be producer of parts, components. We talked about leather and garments and all this kind of stuff. In that bucket, you will see Vietnam, India, China, even Ukraine and Indonesia, these economies, uh, and, and they, they produce uh, goods which get exported to somebody else, right? And right. then you go agricultural-based economies, and that's where, as you mentioned earlier, Sri Lanka, Kenya, Ghana, and Senegal, and these are some of the examples. So these are the places we, which are, which have intensive carbon footprints because of these very specific exposures.
2: Absolutely yeah and, yeah, and, and, and hopefully uh, those countries though you know I, I see i see some uh let's uh, not all doom and do uh, because of you know the role and i i said we would talk about that a little bit is the role of technological innovation right mm-hmm. and and new practices and especially in agriculture forestry you know as you said even uh, reforestation uh, you know we there is uh, uh i i i i have noticed you know um you know uh, Agricultural technology can be shared, right? Uh, and, and so we can make improvements in those areas. Uh, and then going back to the renewables, and you know, there are countries uh, where solar energy, uh, wind, hydro uh, can be a major factor uh, in terms of meeting the energy needs. Um, so I, I just wanted to also hopefully raise some bright spots <laughs> to our discussion so far.
1: <laughs> so that, that's a very good point. Right. Yeah. Okay. Great. So we will take a short break now and we'll continue our discussion in our fourth segment.
3: For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi order today at mkjgb.com from the boardroom to you voice america business network
0: This is Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. To reach the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's worldwide access to 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to maheshjoshi.82 at gmail.com. Now, back to the program.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. And uh, we have with us uh, from University of Houston, Dr. Sally, talking about uh, net zero. Uh, How and what is the best way to go forward with the decarbonization? So Dr. Sally, we talked a few things uh, in the first three segments, we are in our fourth segment. Quickly, I want to touch base on it. There's a lot of impact of this net zero thing by 2050. Uh, beyond the $275 trillion investment needed between now and 2050, there are a few other impacts, which is that this will impact the cost. So there is, a study shows, a 20% higher cost in 2050 on average globally as compared to 2020. Right, And by 2040, it could rise by 25%. So, so there is a lot of cost. the, the cost of generating electricity with an alternate methods, operating costs, capital costs, a lot of things are happening. Near-term cost increases could be significantly, but then that's anticipated, then it will go down. Second point, which I would highlight, 200 million new jobs will be created by the new economy, with the new fuels and, and, and the decarbonization initiatives. But there's a loss of hundred and eighty. 5 million direct and indirect jobs globally now why it is so serious it looks like 200 new jobs uh, are g- gained and 185 gone problem is 185 will need reskilling because the 200 million need something new skill 185 don't have that skill and that has a major impact because how do you how do you reskill 185 million people and 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 the major impact would be the jobs which uh, uh, is in demand for fossil fuel extraction, production, fossil fuel based power sectors, and could be uh, automotive also in the conventional sector, while the gain would be uh, in renewable power, hydrogen, biofuels, that kind of stuff. So, how do you support the displaced workforce? What about training? What about reskilling and taking them through the transition?
2: great 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 questions and you know uh very difficult you know as we said you know the numbers uh, are one thing you know we could have net positive numbers of employment but on an individual level for those who lose their jobs or need that training that's where it becomes very personal uh and we've seen that you know with uh, this move uh in the new data economy right as we're seeing now uh and artificial intelligence robotics automation so very similar questions that we have faced, and we will just amplify those uh, with, with the net zero. Uh, very very uh, good questions, are uh, difficult answers, but I, I do see you know some uh, gradation between uh, I think the sectors. For example, uh, you know we initially I think had our discussion about uh, you know uh, the need for two hundred and seventy five trillion in terms of capital. And at least I think, from the financial institution perspective, yeah. uh, they, they have a major raise, role. How do you see? They that? have a, exactly right a major role. And then all of these, whether it's energy, you know, uh, uh, finance right now, or capital being raised and allocated, those kinds of skills are very transferable. And so, in that financial sector and the financial industry, I think it's more a mindset shift and you know setting goals. Uh, that you know we are going to create special investment vehicles. Uh, we are going to uh, change our funding, um, you know, decisions or and criteria, and you know, in 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 concert with obviously governments and institutions, uh, um, you know, um, the financial sector. I think can have a positive and significant impact, as well as probably retain the jobs. With uh, you know, just shifting the 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 direction um, uh, and the focus. Uh, I think you're so- you're
1: absolutely right, Dr. Sally. Because if you look at it, poor countries and the countries who rely very heavily in fossil fuel will be most will be most impacted by the shifts in the net zero transition because the cost for them would be much higher to do absolutely. that. And where do you get that kind of capital? Now, if you look at the exposure of geographies the Sub-Saharan Africa, if you pick up, or uh, a massive country like India, if you include there's one study which says they would need to invest one and a half times more than the advanced economies as a share of GDP. Right. So so if if a GDP is, is, uh, let's say, U.S. is spending 5% of GDP, uh, then India will have to spend 7.5 to support that kind of economic development and building all the low-carbon infrastructures. Now, Having said that, I still keep in mind that in US also if you take the 44 US counties which depend on fossil fuel extraction, refining and fossil many fuel many manufacturing
2: right? yes. that
1: create 10% of jobs in US even.
2: Absolutely. so they, they will, will also work. get
1: impacted. So yeah. basically the, the the financial impact is very high because the cost of product would be high to be borne by uh, the consumer. Countries have to invest, business have to invest, supply chains will get costly, there could be an inflationary impact. Where does the capital come from? So that's where what you said, the financial institutions, the governments, and and the companies or the, the businesses and people, everybody has to align because there is a financial impact, right? Right. There is an economic shift, and if this transition is disorderly, it can sputter out and it may not move forward by the timeline as we are looking for.
2: Exactly as it is, we've said you know going back you know just our discussion uh, more so than when we started uh, off today uh, reveals uh, you know the 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 tremendous need to work together. Uh, mm-hmm. Even if we go all out and work together, you know this is a very ambitious target. Uh, let's remember that you know to get to net zero. Uh, and the ultimate goal of keeping the temperature rise to what, within 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh Uh, Even if we are able to do that, we can have significant impacts because it's over the next 30, 40 years uh, and a lot of other challenges, but without this uh, concerted effort and this disoriented nature, uh, you know, we're not going to get there. That's the the reality of it. Uh, So you're absolutely right. You know, individual level, uh, company level, um, institution level, uh, country level, uh, all these need to work together and be aligned. And unfortunately we haven't yet seen that kind of uh, alignment on a world stage.
1: All right. So basically it looks like and I, I appreciate the, your point that all of them will have to work together so the government business would need to act together in the same direction, same resolve. And, and the planning and investment horizon has to align so the risks are managed and opportunities are captured. Because if you capture the opportunity and you're investing in physical assets, it creates growth opportunities. And it, it could be the assets with new low-emission products, you know, and the services and supply chains feeding into it, that could help to achieve 1.5 degrees C uh, net zero emission target and... Uh, can make our planet safe and worthy living for the generations to come. So uh, in in the end, it looks like Dr. Sally, I need to thank you for uh, such an interesting discussion. It looks like there are various moving pieces. Uh, It is uh, a humongous transition and where it needs all the arrows to be pointing in the same direction to create a net zero transition and uh, meet the demands uh, by proper capital allocation, keeping the cost under check, creating jobs and for job losses, creating reskilling to feed them into the right uh, sphere of job market so they don't remain unoccupied. So on one end, yes, it has a cost impact. Yes, there, there is capital need. Yes, the global supply chains are very complex. Yes, it has to go beyond Uh, the global boundaries. So here is the most important factor. There's a question which always comes, is it the end of globalization? But if it requires decarbonization, the, the thought of globalization means global decarbonization has to be carried forward. Otherwise supply chains can create a heavy emission of carbon in one geography and across the border somewhere else they can, they can claim to be carbon neutral, so that disparity will come in. So the, 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 the globalization learned over the years now will help that how the whole globe connects together into uh, decarbonization and going to the net zero and ensuring there's a proper flow of capital, scaling of people and information sharing. So thank you, Dr. Sally, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Mahesh. And as always, you know, crisis generates opportunity. And I think global crisis generates global opportunity and business. So thank you for inviting me and for the great discussion today. Very well, son. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. We hope you'll tune in for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time and 12 noon Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a good week.